0: Welcome to the Society Column, Swansea's social sciences podcast. My name is Megan Salter, and in this week's episode, I talk to Leah Owen, lecturer in politics and international relations at Swansea University. We primarily discussed her research on genocide and international relations and her particular focus on the so-called logics of extreme violence. In our conversation, Leah draws on these themes to build an understanding of how to respond to and prevent atrocities. We spoke about this towards the end of April 2023, I hope you enjoy this episode. So, Leah, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I was just wondering if you'd be able to tell us what led you to this specific area of research that you're interested in.
1: Sure. Thanks, Megan. So, I guess there are kind of two things that really brought me to this area of research. One of which is an academic, scholarly reason, and then the other which is more of a personal and political reason. The field that I've been working in gender studies has seen a really big move towards looking at the overlap of emotion and ideology and strategic and quote-unquote rational motivations for genocide and all these factors and their role in determining how genocide actually happens. And there's been lots of writers on it recently, people like Jacques Semelin Rihanna Nielsen, Jonathan Lee De Maynard, Rowan Savage. And so it's a really exciting, like, new development in the field, which I think is actually really helping us to understand like how genocide works, what actually is happening when campaigns of mass killing emerge and get underway. And so there's always a value in then trying to consolidate that research and broaden out the universe of cases. And also look at examples where maybe genocide or mass extermination of violence didn't happen or didn't happen to the same extent. Like, we can look at examples of sort of prejudice or dehumanisation in Rwanda, in Germany, in Guatemala, and in Indonesia, and we can say, oh, well, we very clearly got the dehumanisation and have got the mass violence, Clearly, these two must be linked. But what we kind of need now as a field is to look at cases where maybe you had some dehumanisation or some of this very distinctive form of extreme prejudice, but then maybe you don't have the same level of mass violence. So you can really understand, well, yes, you have dehumanisation, you have violence, but what happens when you have maybe a limited amount, what, what else is needed? What different pathways can you go down towards maybe other forms of social prejudice, marginalisation, et cetera? So I think one of the things that really drew me to this project, to looking at sort of like toxifying, securitization, dehumanisation and in anti-trans prejudice, was trying to expand the universe of cases in that sense. So that was the academic, conceptual, historical interest that drew me to it. The other one, I guess, is, as I said, a much more personal experience. So lots of trans people, including many trans people I know, are really worried at the moment. There's this sense of every day there's a new law being passed or proposed in the United States that's trying to outlaw a particular form of trans healthcare or a Particular ability to transition schools. I've got there's a quote that from a Fred Deutsch, who's a South Dakota lawmaker who is saying, Oh, I've had family killed in Auschwitz, and I've seen the pictures of the bizarre medical experiments. I don't want that to happen to our kids, and that's what's going on right now. So there's a lot of kind of scaremongering about this kind of predatory threat that we pose to vulnerable people, children, women, girls, etc. And so there's kind of this worry that there's an attempt to remove people from public life. And when you hear people like, again, sorry, I've got my bank of quotes here, uh, Mike Knowles at the recent CPAC conference, which is the like big Republican Party conference, who's saying, for the good of society, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. And so there's a lot of people who are worried about the world and the future. And as a trans woman and a genocide studies academic, I thought, well, I've kind of got a responsibility to look into this, to see, well, what are the parallels and what are the differences? And as we're going to talk about in a little bit, what are maybe the things that we should be looking out for? What does genocide studies tell us are the tripwires that indicate you're going down a genocidal path? Or what... Are the particular warning signs that we should be looking out for. And so, yeah, I guess that partly there was this academic, theoretical reason for doing this research. But as someone who is very personally affected by a lot of these issues and has, again, a lot of friends in the UK, in the States, in Eastern Europe and further beyond, this is a real concern for us. And so I thought, well, better write an article about it then. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Leah. So having said that, could you tell us one thing that you would like people to know about your research findings? What's like the most important thing that you think people should know and why?
1: Megan, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you two things <laughs> that I'd like people to sort of take away from this. So when I was looking at the genocide studies side of this, I kind of identified like four areas or four domains I talk about that represent particularly distinctive elements of genocidal discourse and genocidal policy making genocidal sort of securitization that talking up of something as an existential security threat and they're looking at like the nature of the threat so is the threat this invasive corrupting infectious existential threat they looked at the location of the threat so is it within someone's valued space or communities is it within your town your village your home your body you Always think about examples in genocidal propaganda of things like snakes slithering in the grass outside your house, or cockroaches, or cancers. Genocidal rhetoric says that its targets are kind of threatening the body or vulnerable members of communities. Again, children. Uh, and again, I'm going to put such a big quote unquote around this. Like, are the target group threatening our women? And then finally having talked up the the targets of genocidal discourse as such a big existential threat, a key element of this rhetoric is saying, so we need to do something about them. So we need to expel them. So we need to destroy them. They pose an imminent, urgent existential threat. And to quote Scott Strauss, who's, I think, given the most neat summary of this, we need to destroy them to save us. And so I guess like the first thing I'd like people to take away from this research and especially fellow trans people and trans allies is that we're at some of those stages, but not all of them. So if you think about the location of the threat that is often talked about in anti-trans discourse, it's often in schools or in families or victims' bodies, Remember that quote from uh, Fred Deutsch earlier saying, oh, it's bizarre medical experiments on kids. So that does seem to be a, a very clear parallel. And again, if you think about the targets, it's vulnerable people. It's, again, uh, women and children are being threatened by this, whether it's trans women being predators on uh, in women's spaces or whether that's uh, the... To quote Abigail Schreier, who's one of the main advocates of this kind of like rhetoric, it's a transgender craze seducing our daughters and making them into deluded transmasculine people. So, in those ways, yeah, we do seem to be there. But I think if you think about the nature of the threat, there isn't that same existential sense to what like anti trans discourse portrays the supposed like trans threat as. It's not an urgent security issue that if we don't deal with imminently will destroy the nation or the state or somehow compromise compromise us. So I think this is kind of a cold comfort for trans people, this notion that maybe we're not at the stage of direct one-to-one parallels with genocidal rhetoric. But I think what that does suggest is that we, as... Trans people do need to kind of reframe our thinking about uh, well, what we need to do, how we need to act, how does this impact us on a daily basis? We need to reframe that around things like social invisibilization, stigma, removal, removal of like healthcare or other forms of legal support and equality. And again, sorry, I've got I've got my bank of quotes. I'm just going to keep fine. like drawing on a lot of the yeah. other people who've come before me in this field. Uh, Hayley Marie Brown suggested that anti-trans prejudice isn't so much going after trans people themselves, so much as going after the things that allow trans people to exist. And so I talked earlier about what led me to this research as a kind of personal activist perspective. And I think it's to say, well, here is what we need to be focusing on at this moment in time. And then, and you see, I'm really cheating, I'm being cheeky. I'm giving you two things that I'd like people to take away, but. I think the second one links in more with the academic but also the activist perspective is that if there are certain areas where there are parallels between the genocidal rhetoric and the anti-trans rhetoric and certain areas where there aren't parallels, that really encourages us to think about, well, what are the warning signs? What would the escalation towards a more violent form of politics actually look like? And so things like if we saw a movement towards a, I guess, more security-ish tone in this kind of prejudice rhetoric and prejudice discourse, if people started presenting this as well, it's not just um, trans people invading your bathroom or your School, uh, sports event. If it became these people are a direct threat to national security, that would be one of the again tripwires that would indicate that maybe this is something we should be really concerned about. And I realise that's quite a controversial claim because lots of people say, "Well, don't you think you're being a bit scaremongering? Or don't you think maybe that's a bit disrespectful to groups that have faced direct genocide?" To say, "Well," this particular like, legal move maybe doesn't amount to the same kind of thing we see we saw in Rwanda or in Indonesia or Bosnia and Serbia or wherever. And I do take that on board. I think there are examples you can see of this discourse taking on a more like, security-ish frame or a more we need to care about this because of the security of the nation frame. And that does seem to be linked with a genuine uptick of kind of categorical exterminatory violence. So things like Nazi tra- targeting of trans people during the Holocaust and gender non-conform people in the Holocaust was very closely linked to worries about Germany's ability to have enough children to fight the war on behalf of the German Volk. And so... In, a, in Nazi Germany, those two were very linked, the anti-trans and the security prejudice. In Argentina, lots of fascist groups during the Dirty War similarly saw trans people as a kind of threat to Argentinian statehood or nation, nationhood. We're even seeing it now if you look at the language and rhetoric used by Vladimir Putin in when he's talking about the reason that Russia has to fight in Ukraine he's increasingly framing it as we need to defend Russian traditional values from weird gender ideology, or Russia itself will be threatened. And then on a more small scale, but still very serious sort of arena, we also see things like mass arrests of travesti or trans sex workers in Brazil and the US which isn't genocidal in the sense of mass violence and extermination. But when you think about how this is targeting a racially and economically marginalised group as well, it does begin to seem like a source for concern. So I guess if the first research thing I want people to take from these research findings is, okay, here's what we need to do now. The second one is... What should we be looking out for? And not just in trans studies, but in genocide studies more broadly.
0: So from what you've been saying, I, I see your research as being extremely progressive and important for today. Um, but why do you think that this research matters? I know you've touched upon it sort of throughout, but if you could redefine really that, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. So I've talked about how it matters for, well, for me and for people like me and for trans brothers, sisters and siblings across the world. But I think that if we're thinking about the broader area of like, why this research matters more broadly, I think it's because if we as scholars, as policymakers, as activists want to prevent violent prejudice and extreme violence, we need to be able to see it coming. Because as I think Kofi Annan said, like, by the time it's happening it's too late and so in order to do that we need to have a really good sense of early warning we need to have a really good sense of how these things come about and in order to do that like this like the scholarly basis really needs to be pretty strong And so I see this work as contributing to, it's by no means a whole thing. It's a little brick in the bigger bigger wall and the bigger structure of early warning. But I guess it's an attempt to improve our tools for thinking about how genocides escalate and how they unfold. I talked about tripwires or early warning signs or rubicons that we should watch out to see if they're being crossed that escalate from again, quote-unquote regular prejudice and how that might escalate into something even more serious. And I think that's something that is useful for trans studies, but is also useful for studies of mass violence and genocide more broadly, because this is something that people at the UN, people in NGOs have been working on slaving away for a really long time. And identifying how these movements consolidate and build up a case where, let's go back to that Knowles quote, for the good of society, to protect our people, to protect our state, there needs to be some form of violence. Understanding that and taking it seriously is, I think, really important as a political project. And and I hope that in some small way this can contribute. Like the 21st century there's going to be some pretty grim times ahead. The environment, through conflict, through increasing precarity, cost of living, all kinds of prejudices. A lot of the warning signs for mass violence, the things that could kick off future instances of mass violence, conflict, genocide, crimes against humanity, a lot of these are there. And a lot of these are emerging over, will be emerging over the next few years. So I guess what this is trying to do is to say, here are some tools that allow you to see the specific warning signs. And hopefully, if you can understand and recognise the specific warning signs, you can do something about them. One hopes, at least.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Leah. This has been a truly fascinating conversation. I'm really pleased to have been a part of it. Good luck with all the rest of your research and and thank you again for being part of the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me on and for putting together this amazing project.
0: You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into the Society Column. The next episode will be released on Monday and you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts.